how big and present is really fossil fuel in our life? And what can fossil fuel companies and institutions do to reduce the amount of plastic in circulation? If we just look around the house, most of the material that we use for insulation comes from the fossil fuel industry. The heating in the house is gas. Natural gas comes from the fossil fuel industry. The roofing material that we use, you know, waterproofing materials that we use comes from the fossil fuel industry. The binding and cladding that we use in buildings, the origin is fossil fuel industry. The surface coatings like paints, emulsions, distempers that we use comes from the fossil fuel industry. So then we go on to you know, how we conduct our lives. We start off the day by brushing our teeth in a plastic toothbrush that again comes from the fossil fuel industry, right? And then we are using maybe a toothpaste that has basically a plastic tube and on top of it, let's forget the plastic tube. You can actually put toothpaste onto something else as well. Maybe other types of packaging, but let's take that away. That's the easier part. What goes into the toothpaste a lot of the chemicals that are used in the toothpaste, along with the flavoring, actually comes from the fossil fuel industry. Now, I haven't even had my breakfast as yet. A lot of it, so far, is fossil fuel. Then I take a shower, and I'm using maybe a shower gel or a soap that contains, I would say, 60% fossil fuel-based ingredients. And I'm using you know, hot water that has been heated using fossil fuel. Then coming to breakfast. Now, even before I get to breakfast, I've had a shower and then I go and I will use deodorant that has a fossil fuel component in it. I will use some moisturizers, petroleum jelly, again, fossil fuel in that. And I will wear clothes, except for very few of them, which are cotton only. A lot of the clothing that we wear is plastic. You can call it by different names. You can call it nylon, you can call it polyester, you can call it uh, rayon, whatever, but mm. it's fossil fuel. And then when you're having your breakfast, yeah, we can avoid plastic bowls for sure. For a cereal or toast or whatever, we can avoid plastic bowls. We can avoid plastic plates, fantastic. But what goes into the cereal itself? What goes into the milk? What goes into the bread? Lots of preservatives that come from the fossil fuel industry. Packaging comes from the fossil fuel industry. Your cereal boxes and the cans and whatever, it's plastic again. And then a very, I can say, eco-conscious kind of a person. And I take public transport. My public transport here is a bus that runs on diesel. London has a number of electric buses but they only run in flat surfaces. Mine is basically we are in, we are in suburban parts of London where it's quite, you know, uphill, downhill, and these electric buses just can't take it. So it is diesel. And then I take a train, which obviously is electric, but a lot of the components within the train are all plastics. And how is that electricity produced? The TFL website particularly says about 60% of their electricity needs actually came from fossil fuel sources. So 60% came from fossil fuel sources, coal, natural gas, oil, etc. 40% is 
from renewables, which is a great improvement from where they were at about 18%, 20% pre-pandemic. They've, they've now gone up to about 40%, which is fantastic. And then you bunch a card, which is plastic, onto a card reader, which is also plastic. And, and then we basically have doors that are made of glass, and then it's got those plastic frames on it. There you go. And just talking, you know, morning, maybe yeah. two hours. And that's the amount of fossil fuel that, that we have as part of our lives. It would be at least, let's say, extremely hard to totally get rid of it. If we consider how our world has changed in the past 200 years, we can not just get rid of you know, everything we've done and how we've built things and all at once, or at least in the next 20 years, 40, 30 years. It's just not possible. So are institutions committing to like anything in particular apart from reaching net zero? Yeah, yeah. Not possible for the fossil, fossil fuel, fuel industry, yes. for sure. Fossil fuel. With the current technology. But if you are saying for you know, net zero by 2050 and there are other technologies that come up, yes, there is a possibility that is there. But you know, we also have to remember that any technology that comes in, we always hear that you know, there is new technology that is available, people are not using it, and we could just stop oil. There is this movement called Just Stop Oil, and there are so many of these you know, activists and whatever they're saying that you, know, you shouldn't do this, stop oil production, blah, blah. We have to remember that all of the progress that we've had in the last century or so right, is actually attributed to fossil fuel. The economic growth that we've had is actually attributed to the fossil fuel. And without that, would we have grown at this pace? The answer is no. But if it is a case where we can you know, being away from fossil fuel over time, then that needs a radical transformation. And that radical transformation has to happen in all the other sectors around the fossil fuel industry. And it has to happen in all our lives. Everything at large. Yes, absolutely. Everything at large. And that can only happen when businesses start taking carbon into account as part of their decision-making. So is there a carbon intensity that can be considered as part of decision-making? Does the company have internal carbon pricing through which you make decisions on which electricity supplier to go with, which you know machinery to buy, where to, where to source your, your raw materials from, where to get your components from? If they start taking carbon intensity into account, and they also have an internal carbon pricing through which they can say, okay, this doesn't fit my carbon budget, so I can't go with this decision. You start seeing things in a different light altogether. Is there progress in the energy mix? Today, I would say nearly every major, every developed country has a policy for energy transition. Every developed country has a policy for energy transition. Every large company today has started putting together plans for emissions reduction. They call it net zero. They call it emissions reduction. They call it you know, a climate pledge, whatever it is. But a lot of this is actually driven by 
I would say Shackford is asking those questions. It is driven by customers asking those questions. It is driven by employees asking those questions. And policymakers start making those decisions when their constituents start asking those questions. Can you make a change with all due respect to all of the activists? Because without them, we would not have got where we are today. All due respect to them and this moment of activism with respect to climate, etc., has been going on for 25, 30, 40 years now. And I know people that went to prison way back in early 90s and whatever, because they were protesting, you know, fossil fuel plants being set up and whatever. But having spoken to them and having understood what, what is happening, activism can only take us so much. It can only take us so far, right? The true changes that have to come in have to come in from inside capitalism. It can't be from outside. Those forces can only change a little bit here and there. And the moment the activist force kind of, kind of, kind of say, goes away, or the moment that the economic conditions don't warrant that kind of a policy, it will change. The U.S. is actually starting off well. On one side, they're doing a lot of work with the Inflation Reduction Act and tax cuts being given for climate projects, etc. Fantastic work. But on the other side, there are also carbon bombs that are coming out. That pressure from outside can only do so much. Now is the time when the pressure has to build from inside. And that pressure can only be done by changing business frameworks, decision-making, by changing how shareholders engage with their companies, by changing how employees demand that their employers take action. And I think this is how things can change. The energy mix is never going to change only from the outside. That pressure has to be from the inside, inside of capitalism. So, so uh, w- one question that right. comes up is, so there are many actors that kind of need to uh, just change the way they operate. Is there anyone out there that is actually refusing to do all this? There are the, like, deni- like people are in denial out there. Or are, are there people saying, we can never get out of this. This is the only way through. This is the only way our world can operate. Yeah, yeah. there are many examples of that, Francesco. One recent example that comes to mind is uh, the case of ExxonMobil. There was a shareholder motion in order to identify the cost of shutting down their existing fossil fuel facilities in view of going to net zero. So shareholders asked them for a plan saying, what is the impact of the balance sheet when you start shutting down fossil fuel projects? What is the plan? What is the timeline? What is the cost? How is it going to hit the balance sheet? when you start shutting down. And ExxonMobil refused. They declined that particular shareholder motion. And they said, there is no way that the world is going to be net zero by 2050. And they have this view that we are only here to produce stuff because you are asking for it. So put the blame onto the consumer. You guys are driving these petrol cars and you're asking for me to produce petrol. So that is the stand that they took. Very similar ones that have also happened is 
you know, the case of, I think, Shell and there are a few other energy companies that were involved in a, basically a class action lawsuit wherein the investors asked them whether the directors have performed their fiduciary duty, meaning being truthful to the shareholder in order to, you know, produce the right amount of returns for me. Have you been truthful? Have you been performing your fiduciary duty properly in view of the fact that there is climate change and the world has to go net zero and literally your revenues would need to be zero in order for the world to be going zero. So are you really doing your duty? So unfortunately, the courts kicked that uh, lawsuit out the door. But but the firm that is actually taking up this work is actually supporting it and they want to appeal the, ju- appeal the judgment as well. So I'm you know, closely following this and people have more updates on, on what is going on. We keep a track on the, on the fossil fuel industry. And one of the things is, I think they're going to be key in the transition process. Rather than calling them the enemy here, I would call them the partner because without them, this transition won't happen, right? We need that energy. We need them in the game. We need them involved as part of the process. And we need them to reduce emissions in their operations. And we need them to support through the transition and weeding away from fossil fuels products. Interesting. Do you see maybe a future where we would have oil companies basically becoming renewable energy companies? Is this a possible scenario? Yeah, yeah, very much possible. Very much possible. There are a couple of areas where they can actually become, you know, shall I say, clean fuel companies. Hydrogen being an ex- uh, excellent example that I talked about. The usage of hydrogen in industrial heat is an excellent use case to be taken. And secondly, you know, we're talking transportation. But I would like to give the example of not just the you know, hydrogen-based fuel cell cars, which have not been very successful in the market, but I'd like to take the case of you know, freight transportation, freight logistics. So you've got trucks that are built on hydrogen, and they can carry hydrogen in large tanks. It obviously reduces the payload, but you can move away from diesel into a hydrogen-based internal combustion engine without a lot of modification to the okay. truck itself. The only emission would be basically water vapor that goes out. So no more carbon dioxide. Is water vapor dangerous? The answer is yes. In small quantities, it is not. But in larger quantities, water vapor can actually disrupt the, the cycle. And you know, you put, you know, basically it is excess yeah. humidity that starts coming up. And you know, when there is when there is excess humidity, the whole climatic cycle starts starts changing. So can you put uh, a million hydrogen powered trucks onto the road? Yes. But would that impact the, the sort of carbon cycle and the overall climatic cycle of the earth? Probably yes. We still haven't found out. But, but the reality, is it doable? The answer is yes. At least we should try. Can you use hydrogen? Yeah, yeah, it has no. been tried. It has been tried as well. There are companies that have 
that have done this. There's a UK-based firm that we spoke with earlier that has a, a hydrogen-powered internal combustion engine. There is an Indian manufacturer, Ashok Leland. They have a hydrogen-based internal combustion engine, which has been tested, and it is out in production as well. So you can actually order the truck and buy it, right? Out there in India, you can actually buy it. Right. Here in the UK, yes, there is. there are a couple of companies that have already done this. There is one that produces trucks. There's another one that produces buses. Eco-friendly buses, as they call it, hydrogen-based. TFL did a trial, and uh, this bus was running in Covent Garden, a small route from, I think, from Covent Garden to Waterloo, if I'm right. Uh, and we tried it. It was pretty much the same as riding any other bus. As a passenger, I don't see any difference at all, but it's a, it's basically a zero emission bus. So is it doable? Yeah, it is doable. Have there been trials? Yes. Is the technology stable? Yes. It's Is it on the road? Yes. Can you move many of the, you know, diesel-based buses onto hydrogen? Yes, you can. With capital-intensive projects, yes, you can move them. Can you run freight on hydrogen? The answer is yes. Can you move industrial heat into hydrogen? Yeah, doable. And the other option is also biofuels as well. Industrial heat can also move to basically to biofuels. Can you produce electricity using hydrogen? Answer is yes. Can you change a gas-fired power plant, electric power plant, power generation facility? Can you transform that into a hydrogen-fueled electricity production facility? The answer is yes. These are capital-intensive, but doable. And all this would be done to reach what we were calling gross zero, not net zero. Yes. Is, is there anything zero. else yeah. that is left that we can do to make this transition happen? I mean, we were mentioning that you know things need to change from the inside of organizations. Like we need shareholders yes. bring the change within their organizations. Is there anything Absolutely. else you could think Absolutely. of that could help this transition? There are two things left here, which obviously means that as a shareholder, shareholders will need to start holding their companies accountable, not just for their own emissions, but all the way through to scope three. So if you're holding even one share in an oil company, it doesn't need to be the largest oil company on the planet, but even if you hold one share in an oil company and you see a climate-friendly or a net-zero-oriented shareholder motion, please vote on it. Every shareholder, everybody holding even one share, please do that. That is definitely, dig through it. Feel free to ask questions. Feel free to, you know, attend the annual general meetings. As a shareholder, you are entitled to attend the annual general meetings. Ask questions there. Try and understand the company's transition plans. And if they are not too sure, call them out. Call them out right there. And a major part of this work, again, I'm kind of repeating this in every episode, I guess. A major part of this shareholder part actually lies in the hands of institutional investors. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who are able to, I would say, engage with the corporates, particularly the fossil fuel companies. How come? Can you tell us more about it? So if you look at fossil fuel companies and the way they are capitalized, 
over 50% of fossil fuel companies' shareholders are actually institutional investors. Secondly, the way they raise money for capital-intensive projects, like this new carbon bomb that is coming up in the North Sea, right? new project that the UK recently signed off. How are they raising money? They are raising money by issuing bonds. So they're not raising equity, they're raising through bonds. And the reason why they can do that is even though it is a higher interest rate environment, fossil fuel companies being rated at very high credit scores because they are very credit worthy, it means that their cost of capital is actually pretty close to the risk-free rates. So they can pretty much raise bonds and I also did some work on understanding who those bondholders are. And a quick guess, a big surprise, it's the same insurance companies, it's the same pension funds, it's the same, you know, the university endowments and large asset managers that you basically have your pensions with, you buy your insurance policies with. It's the exact same ones. They are the largest bondholders on such kind of fossil fuel projects. So can they convince the companies to to change? The answer is yes. And how do you do that? A lot of this comes down to corporate engagement. Mm -hmm. Structured corporate engagement that has to be conducted by the institutional investors in alignment with various other shareholders as well. So there is a common motive, going next zero, and for that we need you to reduce emissions. Come up with viable proposition. So with that kind of a mole, I think companies will be definitely willing to take mm-hmm. action on that. And the reality is, even in cases where shareholder motions are defeated, most of the companies still take some level of action or the other. If you just look at the last 10 years and look at how many such shareholder motions were defeated, basically climate-oriented shareholder motions, ESG stuff, whatever, were defeated. And you look at the next few years, you will see sections in the annual report where companies are talking about the action they've taken pretty much related to that shareholder motion that was defeated. Because every corporate in the world is actually scared. The reality is they are actually scared. And while the world can go and keep telling us that, you know, the media can convince us that "Ah, fossil fuel companies, they want to change, they don't need to change, etc. They are afraid of their shareholders. And if shareholders start asking questions, they will change. And Unfortunately, it is not a case of unstructured questioning and activism that's going to take us there. It's done the bit already. But now this is a stage where there has to be structured questioning, structured engagement with the company. And it has to be led by the largest investors because they are the ones who can convince them. Because if they say, I'm going to take my capital elsewhere, the companies have to listen to it. And these companies would they need to take action for that. They don't have a choice otherwise. And at this point, I'll probably kind of introduce the fact that at Helix, we are working on a transition finance landscape report 
the larger report in itself is going to be a paid one, but for people who want to get a sneak preview, they can register themselves. The report comes out mid-January, but they can register themselves and they can get a summary of that report. And that summary should give you a view of how a transition is possible, a transition to net zero is possible, and how finance needs to change for that. And we will be talking about some of the best practices, meaning some of the firms that are already taking action and how they're doing this and how they are financing such transition projects and how you could take that and go to your board of directors and talk about what actions to take. So can you put together a business case for a transition as an investment firm? Yes. You can. This report is going to give you all of the you know, merits for you to do that, all of the research that is needed for you to take that action. And we are always happy to help in order to get on the call and maybe discuss further details with respect to the report. Or if you'd like uh, further help on a, on a sort of customized basis, we can introduce you to our platform as well. We can help them deliver on it. And how do you deliver? It is through this engagement process. It is through the structuring of these bonds and it is through the structuring of these investments in the right fashion in order to meet a profitable goal, but at the same time, a profitable goal in a low emission yeah. world. I'd say right? the, all the rest at this point just sounds like wishful thinking. If there is a way to change things is yes. Yes. not destroying systems, but revolutionizing them. I would invite anyone who tuned in to have a look at what Helix has to offer. The website is Helix Earth. Yeah. Dr. Earth. Yeah. yeah. Helix. Great. Thank you, Somi, for all the insights and the information. It's, again, it's always very interesting to hear of all those things and to hear about, you know, ways that we can adopt for really change things around. Yeah. Without going into a sort of, you know, uh, a non-growth or degrowth yeah. kind of a scenario, you still grow, but you grow in a way that is low emission and kinder to the planet. Mm -hmm. And this alone sounds extremely ambitious, but probably not as impossible as we think. In the next chapter, we're going deeper into fossil fuel products and see what, and if we have any, alternatives to the fossil fuel and petrochemicals we use in our day-to-day -day life, and if such products can actually represent a viable solution for both the consumers and the producers. Stay tuned.